listening to The Tenderness Revolution, a podcast about the stories of kindness, compassion and empathy that play out in our lives, because these deeply moving experiences describe what it means to be human and invite us into a new way of thinking about the world and each other. I'm your host, writer and journalist Yvonne Gavin, and every episode I'll be asking a new interviewee about a pivotal moment of tenderness that helped shape the course of their life. In this episode, I'm talking to Ebony Gilbert. These days, Ebony describes herself as a writer and truth teller after years of carrying around the shame of her past, which involved abuse, addiction and success in the public eye, followed by a difficult introduction to new motherhood. Talent spotted by a top London model agency at the age of 13, Ebony went on to work as a page three glamour model and then actress, appearing in a number of films. She featured in all the newspaper gossip columns and seemed to have an amazing career, but she was also battling an addiction to alcohol and drugs. After going through rehab, she met her partner Steve and became pregnant with her son George, who she describes as the love of her life. Weeks after the birth, Ebony and Steve discovered that George was blind and he has since had multiple diagnoses, including autism and learning disabilities. She lives in East London where she works as a birth doula and poet and Ebony's new collection, This Skin I'm In, has just been published. Ebony exudes beauty and is truly one of the most honest and open people I've ever spoken to. During our conversation, she shared many of the difficult and traumatic experiences that she's been through and reflected on how she's been able to deal with them. Her mission to tell the truth is truly inspiring and I really hope you find comfort and hope by listening to our conversation. Hi Ebony, it's lovely to see you. I'm really really happy to have you. I'm (laughs) so happy that you're here on the podcast with us today. I'm really thank you very much. Yeah it's so nice to see you in London. Um, yes, it's it's a proper freezing, the first kind of freezing autumn day today, and it, it it feels quite lovely actually. It's nice and sunny and cold and bright and yeah, lovely. Oh, I love those crisp autumn days. I do miss them, I do. But it's <laughs> I have to say I also quite like to see the sunshine here in Boston. Yeah. <laughs> it's um it's- I, I wouldn't mind being in Botswana in the sunshine, <laughs> I'll be honest. <laughs> Well, it's the beginning of summer and it's always, I always find it a bit disorientating because I I always have to keep reminding myself of the month. It's like, it's the beginning of summer. It's October. It's not autumn. Mm. It's not the beginning of winter. It's the beginning of summer. So I still get disorientated by it, but yeah, I do appreciate it as well. It's, It's beautiful. So I'm so looking forward to our conversation. There's just so much about you that's fascinating and I think our listeners are going to really get a lot from this conversation Um, but I want to start as I always do by asking you to share your moment of tenderness with us because the idea behind the tenderness revolution podcast is that essentially our lives are made up of all these little stories stitched together and when we shine a light on scenes where we felt a profound sense of connection to something bigger than ourselves 
moments where we felt seen or understood or that we had a deeper relationship to the world around us. It's as though we're awakened to a greater sense of meaning and purpose. So I'd love to hear your moment, Ebony. That really helped actually just hearing you talk about tenderness in that way um, and just helped me kind of drop into my heart and think about my moment of tenderness after a frantic morning of shoving my child out of the door and ah, I'm not tender at all. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My, when you asked me to do this podcast, I was really thinking about so many moments of tenderness that I was finding it difficult to actually pinpoint the one, if you like. Um, And you know, in my thinking brain, there was this and there was this and there was this. And then in my heart, the same moment just kept coming and coming and coming. And and it's not something I've ever spoken about before. So it feels quite um, vulnerable to, to talk about. But um, the moment that I can pinpoint as, as, you know, it was a life-changing moment was the day that I... It was like I literally woke up one day and I forgave myself for all the self-hatred and blame that I had heaped upon myself for my son uh, suffering brain damage when he was born. Um, And there are hundreds of moments before it and after it, but there was a real there was a very specific moment that happened um, and it was like, you know, for four years prior to this moment, and I'll tell you more about that later, but for four years prior to this moment, it was, this must be my fault. I must have done something or not done something that caused this. And I am a terrible human being. Mm. And if people knew who I really was and what I'd done, mm. or, you know, could, you know, um, yeah, all this, this, this just dreadful self-blame and, I'll tell you the exact moment. I'll tell you what happened, um, just to put it all in context. So that we had this amazing acupuncturist that was treating our son um, for his stroke and um, because he's nonverbal and she works a lot with the kind of speech and language center of the brain. And so she had been treating him and, you know, we're not, we're not rich by any, by any, (laughs) we're not, (laughs) but we would put all of our money and all of our effort and all of our time and all of our love into our son. And it was like, you know, we will find the money to pay for the best specialists to treat him and to help him as much as we can. And I remember one day, Mandy, the acupuncturist, she said, um, I think it would be really good for me to treat you. And I was like, Oh no, I I, no, I, mm. I can't spend money on treating me. Um, <laughs> you know, it's all about him. And she said, no, I, I really, I want to treat you. And I said, okay. Uh, okay I'll have a session and during the session um, bearing in mind I had cried uh, I'm not exaggerating a million rivers of tears about his birth before this moment but what happened was the acupuncturist she put a particular needle in me and I started crying right which is not abnormal for me I'm a I cry a lot so I started crying and Mandy said she said yeah she said you're you're letting it go now and I and I said I said I'm thinking about George's stroke and the brain damage and and what happened to him and she said yeah it's time to it's time to let it go from your body now 
And she said, yeah, I can see that you're letting it go as I was crying. And I, and I honestly, I was a little bit cynical, I was a bit skeptical. And I said, I said, Mandy, I said, I've, I've cried about this a thousand million times. I said, this is just another cry. It's, you know, it doesn't mean anything. It's just, I will always blame myself for this. And that's it. Um, anyway, I went home, um, had my evening, had my dinner, da, 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 put George to bed. And the, the, the moment was this, the strangest thing happened. I woke up in the morning the next day. I was literally right here as I am now sitting on my bed. I, I opened my eyes and it was almost like a voice came into my head. It was my voice, but it came independently of me. And it said, oh, it wasn't your fault. And it was like, it, it was, it was almost like somebody had just told me the simplest thing in the world. Like, of course it wasn't your fault. And I, I, I sat up in my bed and I, I just was like, I felt kind of casual and breezy. It was really bizarre. I was like, of course it wasn't my fault. I didn't do anything or not do anything. I couldn't have changed what happened. It had nothing to do with me. Of course it wasn't my fault. I forgive you. <laughs> and it was just, I'm kind of laughing about it, but it was like this. I, I don't even know what the right word is. It was, it was like I had been, it sounds a bit cliche, but been carrying around uh, not just a rock, uh, but, you know, had been dressed in rocks. It was like I had been wearing a coat of rocks and a hat of rocks and shoes made of rocks for four years. Um which really hurt, you know, were really, not just really, really heavy, but really, really fucking hurt my skin. And it was almost like somebody had just gone, oh, you can put that down now, carry on with your life. And, 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 it, and that was it. And I haven't blamed myself since that day. And it all, that all sounds quite magical and fantastical, but that is my experience. That's what happened. And, you know, there's still been a shed load of processing and talking and navigating the whole situation. But essentially that day, something changed. And I realized that uh, I am a person who has always self-blamed and been full of shame it's just who I am so of course I was going to also blame myself for this and what worse thing to blame yourself for than your son not being able to walk or talk or you know what what worse thing to torture yourself with um so that was probably a bit longer than I expected for the actual moment but the moment was I woke up and I forgave myself and that was the moment yeah wow Ebony that's that. I really was struggling not to sort of well up because um, that's incredibly moving. And I think what's particularly amazing about that moment is how visceral it is and how I'm sure that, you know, so many of us can relate to the, the feeling of like that weighty, heavy feeling of, negative emotions in our body and what you had been through was real difficult deep dark trauma and pain and I can only imagine the weight uh, I mean I love the way you describe it as as you know rocks on your body and on your like a hat of rocks and shoes it was it must have been so heavy so so heavy and how I truly think how amazing you are that you were able to come to that place after only four years, because it's not really very long. 
after mm-hmm. after such a traumatic event to have been able to to gain some awareness and insight actually over what you were carrying around interesting that it did happen in a physical way um mm-hmm. so it wasn't really the the kind of talking therapy that triggered that feeling of being able to let something go or that voice that opened up that voice of of course it's not your fault of course nothing is your fault of course of course you know it wasn't yeah and actually a thinking realization it was an embodied realization you've completely hit the nail on the head it was a complete body sensation um I had talked it to death and cried it to death and um, you know, one one of the things that I've been aware of for many years now is that, and I know that most people do do this and most people have these kind of psychosomatic experiences, but as a person who naturally feels very, very deeply and who naturally is an addict who wants to get away from those feelings, what I tend to do is to split off my head from my body and um, feel everything in my body so that I don't have to think about it and acknowledge it and um yeah I don't have to feel it and it and I've always I always had this thing of like you know yeah I'm talking about it and this is really important and I'm crying about it but it's stuck it's stuck in my body and you know I had said these same words over and over again when I'd been doing trauma therapy for 10 years you know 11 years prior to my son being born as well and I kept saying to the I'd go from therapist to therapist to therapist and I'd say, you don't understand, it's stuck in my body and I don't know how to get it out. It's mm. it's in my body. Yes. And this relationship between the head and the body. And, and yeah. you know, at that point, I hadn't really gone into the kind of body therapy and the body work. And it was when I started doing that that I thought, oh, this is very, very interesting. Ah. Mm. <laughs> and, and, you know, I've used it for so many other things since, uh, you know, I, I feel like, that that kind of bodywork alongside the other stuff has has changed my life it has revolutionized the 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 trauma you know the trauma of his birth you know my original trauma of being a survivor of abuse and you know it there's been yeah it's been such a long journey to almost get the head I say the head, of course, because I'm a dissociated person, my head, <laughs> to the head and the body, my head and my body. It's been such a long process to get them to kind of come back together and just click the, yes. click it back on. And yeah. sometimes it wanders off again. And I'm like, oh, where's my head gone? Oh, it's over there. Try and bring it back, <laughs> literally. And yeah, I'm, I'm a headless corpse sometimes. <laughs> and that's okay. And I feel great, though, when I can put my head back on. I'm like, ah, oh, I'm here. Hello, I'm all connected. And yeah connecting mind and body yeah yeah it's that thing of dissociation isn't it you know um Gabor Mate I'm sure you're yes. aware of his work yeah and that's the way he described it isn't it the the trauma and that it it's that disconnect that's actually what trauma is it's it's that moment where you split off and you you know in order to to numb and not feel that trauma you split and that's exactly what you're talking about and that's so fascinating Absolutely. Yeah, I'd love to talk about that with you in more detail. Um, But I just wanted to ask a bit more in relation to this, the moment that you described and this process of letting that shame go. Mm. um, 
did something did did sort of a feeling of tenderness come in was it a, a tender self-compassion did that come in and did that then manifest in your life I mean it might not be as concrete as that or that as easy to identify but is that what happened or was it a very very subtle gradual thing um no it wasn't subtle or gradual and uh it it was I can literally look at photos of myself before and photos of myself after. And I look like myself again. You know, I look like I, my skin looks more radiant and glowing and, you know, my eyes look brighter and lighter and I look better. I look like myself. And I remember my partner saying to me before this moment happened, we had, I remember I was lying on the floor on the rug in the lounge and we were having a conversation and he said, he said, you know, you just, he said, I know that what we've been through and what we go through on a daily basis is really difficult and painful and it's hard to let go of. He said, but you, he said, you are losing yourself. You are not yourself anymore. You, you know, you, you need to, you need to find yourself again. You need to find some joy again and find you again and do mm-hmm. things that, you love and Mm. even though we had this conversation on a you know it was a rational head conversation and I felt it in my body I felt it but I couldn't do those things I thought I know what you mean I used to write and I used to go out and see my friends and I used to wear red lipstick and I used to you know have baths and light candles for myself and do this shit for myself that I actually deserve Mm. and for that period of time it just completely went out of the window and you know, it, 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 it just started coming back and, you know, it, of course it, it has waned again, you know, as other bits of shame have come in and other bits, you know, other things that I've struggled with, you know, have come in, but even, you know, I remember being in therapy and my, I, I remember saying to my therapist, um, I said, I want to buy a duvet for my bed. And, and he was like, okay. <laughs> okay and and it was I'd kind of just realized I thought I've been sleeping under a sheet for I don't know maybe two three years I think I had given the duvet because my son likes to sleep on the floor instead of on his bed Mm. I think I had taken the duvet off my bed and made some extra padding on the floor and I then had this sheet on the bed and one thing that I absolutely love is uh, a bed that looks lovely with you know, really nice cushions and a nice throw and a nice duvet. And on a sensory level, as somebody who, you know, has ADHD and somebody who has had a lot of trauma, one of my most comforting things in life is to wrap myself up in a big, cosy blanket or duvet. Mm. And I realized, I said to my therapist, I'm going to buy myself a duvet. And he said, have you not got a duvet? And I said, "Uh, no, I haven't had one for a couple of years. And I came home that day and I suddenly realized I was like, wow, like I feel sad that I have been quite chilly under a sheet for quite a long time, you know, in the winter. And it makes me feel really, really Mm. sad. Yeah, that's really sad. That's a manifestation of of how you felt about yourself, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, like really felt undeserving. And, Mm. you know, I literally went and you know, I was aware before that that I hadn't bought myself a duvet, but I, I just thought, oh, I haven't got time. You know, I haven't got the time, or 
And actually, you know, I had time to do, you know, round the clock care for my son and, you know, time to help other people do things for themselves. And it was a real, it was a real turning point. Yeah. It was when it was a real metaphor for me. I realized I thought, okay, something is shifting yeah. here and something yeah. is changing. And I'm, I am becoming more tender with myself mm. and I am, mm. yeah, coming back to, know my me and what yeah. I deserve and and Conne- forgiving myself mm, connecting to that deep sense of who you are connecting to your your true self and 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 realizing that you know you had been neglecting that so so mm. profoundly but again so such a common experience I think for so many women especially those with special needs children who have mm. so much to, to they have to give and give and give and they want and you want to give you want to do that like you you want that more than anything else but you also need to be like that's why tenderness is is all of it it's tender to all of all of it it's tender to yourself and tender to others and they really need to to all come together because otherwise it's something's going to fall apart Totally. And and what's interesting for me is that, you know, my son is six now. And so for those first four years, while I was carrying all that shame and self-blame that, oh, it must have been my fault. I, you know, I didn't, in inverted commas, I didn't have time to do anything for myself. Um, I still have the same amount of care that I need to give now. And, you know, he still has all the same needs that he had before. Yet I also have found the time to mm. do things for myself and to mm. have little breaks and mm. to say this is this is what I need mm. um and so oh. that would suggest that the time you know yeah. yes it's very difficult mm. to get it but it, it was there it, it, yeah. if only I could I know, think have, was, yeah sorry just I just think... have no no just have just to have that um yeah that that the, the deserving uh, deservingness is not a word but the deserving deservingness the deservedness <laughs> you know yeah. it's yeah. like you can find it if yeah. you feel like you deserve yeah. it yeah and I think what's interesting as well is to kind of observe what was it that was preventing you from finding that time before something was mm. something was so you mentioned that you were an addict and I know that's part of your former life Ebony, but it seems like so much of what you do is around becoming whole, as though you're acknowledging the shadow parts of yourself, which we all have, and accepting them as a crucial part of who you are, or the skin that you're in. And it's like you've said on Instagram, sometimes I delete my own posts because I'm not the same person I was four minutes ago. And yeah. I wanted to ask you about your earlier life, because to go back, you started modelling at a really young age, didn't you? Actually, at thirteen, and then you went yeah. on, yeah, and you went on to do various bits of acting. You appeared in a number of different films. You were even a glamour model for a while. You were on TV. You went to all the parties and appeared in all the newspaper gossip pages. And <laughs> it seemed like you had this amazing career, but that's also the time that you were battling with an addiction to drink and drugs, isn't it? And then in, yeah. And then in the space of a really short time, you had your son, you became a special needs mom and now birth doula and a poet. And I wonder if it feels as though 
you've shedded that skin or the skin of the person you were then, or if you embrace that part of you with compassion and still feel that she's very much a part of who you are now? I think, um, I think for so many years of my sobriety and my recovery, I really tried to actively disown those parts of myself that I felt shame around and, you know, felt like, um, you know, had these fears that people would know that I'd been a paid three model or know that I was an addict and would, you know, just reject me or judge me. And, you know, I think I started modeling when I was 13 um, and I was spotted by like a, a really big fashion agency at the time and went into, you know, doing loads of great work. Unfortunately, I as, <laughs> didn't grow, so it didn't last very long <laughs> because I'm only five foot three. I think they were hoping I might stick on an extra foot along the way that didn't happen um but that was actually around the same time that you know my eating disorder started and I first picked up alcohol and drugs um and then when I was about 17 I um decided very suddenly that I was going to leave college in Nottingham and move to London and be a patron model this is you know I was like I'm doing it overnight I don't know anybody there but I'm off and I'm doing it and you know, I think that felt like the ultimate in being seen and in my young, young mind was, you know, getting a, uh, getting attention and feeling valid and worthy and accepted. And so when I moved to London, that's when uh, probably about a year after I moved down here, um, the addiction really took off and other drugs came into play and, um, yeah, so it, it was it, it only lasted maybe let me think about five years, but I I pushed myself to the very, very limits within those five years. And people often say, Oh, you know, you came into recovery so young, you were only twenty-three. You know, how could you have how could it have been that bad then? And I'm like, Oh, it was, it was that bad. And I'm actually really grateful that I fast tracked through it and that I, you know, I I did come in when I did come in. Um but like, as I was saying earlier, you know, for the probably up until only the last year or two, really, if I'm really being honest, um, I really wanted to deny those parts of myself. I literally wanted to just delete them. I thought I don't want them to exist. I don't want anyone. I'd be mortified if anyone came across the pictures and, you know, I don't want anyone to know. And there's I think a lot of the writing, the poems in the book, it, it felt like. And I didn't do it. On, I didn't set out to do this on purpose. It, it felt like I was with each poem claiming different parts of myself. So, you know, there was one about the nine year old me. And then there's one in there about the 14 year old me, which is when everything felt really difficult and painful. Um, and, you know, that there's one in there called Chalk Mark, which is about seven you know being 17, moving to London and just kind of leaving myself behind and just going, I'm going to be a new person. I'm going to be. I'm going to just going to transform myself. And, you know, at that time it was, you know, 17, I was like, I'm going to get a boob top and I'm going to look like this and I'm going to be a different person and everything will be okay. And again, when I got sober, it was like, okay, get rid of her. You know, I wanted to dye my hair brown and get rid of the implants and just be a different person again. Mm. Um, and I feel like through, you know, through the writing of the poetry and through the therapy that I've done, I just feel like, I've kind of gone back in time 
and scooped up those selves that I'd kind of thrown away. You know, I've kind of got them all together and go, right, nine-year-old self, I love you. I'm here for you. I hear you. 17-year-old self, I love you. I'm here. I'm not embarrassed about you. I'm not ashamed about you. Mm. You know, I can still have my moments of like cringeness, cringiness, if that's the word. Um, But generally speaking, all of those parts live within me now, whereas they were scattered and I never felt whole. And I feel like, you know, the writing of this book feels like that process of getting all those bits and stitching them all together. And there's there's a line in one of the poems, which is, um, I, I will mend you. I will mend you. And it's, it very much feels about almost like, like, like my body is a tapestry and going, okay, I'm going to mm. stitch this part on that had been dissociated and, mm. you know, thrown away and covered up and wanted to be erased. And all those things that we've all been through, we've all been through our own stories and our own traumas and losses. And, you know, we carry those in our body and, my wish before was to cut off those parts, literally cut them off, I thought. And I remember hearing a story years ago about somebody who had this obsession with wanting to have one of their limbs um, amputated. And I remember yeah. people being like, well, why would you want to do that? I don't understand. And I remember thinking, oh, I really get that. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, I, I really identify with that feeling of like, mm-hmm. I, I sometimes would say, if I could just throw my head away, and actually maybe my body as well, just like, just that, then I'd be okay because it's so difficult living whole you know while you're feeling so disconnected so yeah a lot of the journey of sobriety and recovery and the writing of the poems that's what it's about and that's you know it's not I'm not perfectly whole and joined up on a daily basis you know I when things come along that wobble me and make me feel scared or shocked or in grief I still dissociate first before I feel and integrate um but yeah you're aware of that you you notice that you're doing it and then you're able to to bring an awareness and then actually re-assimilate so that's that's really incredible that you're doing that yeah yeah and and also your new book the cover what's really beautiful about it is it does actually have an image of you naked on the cover but in a very different way Actually, um, a friend of mine, Hannah, we used to, I lived with two Hannahs in Notting Hill when I was 17 in this crazy party apartment. Um, and all, all of all three of us would, you know, we were all kind of doing glamour and, you know, on that kind of party scene. And Hannah commented only this morning on Instagram, she saw the cover of the poetry book and she said, well, she said, who'd have the 20 years later that you're appearing topless again on the front cover of something. And I was like, yeah, because I, you know, I've, I've been wearing practically crinolines for the last 15 years. Like, oh my God, I'm embarrassed. I don't really want to. And now I'm like, yeah, this is my body. You know, these, these boobs are not the perky implant boobs that were airbrushed and glossy on, on in the magazines and the newspapers. Mm. They're different. They have breastfed. They have been rearranged multiple mm. times. You know, I've had implants in, I've had implants out. Then I had, a bleed and had them kind of had to go in again and have them rearranged so I've got these physical scars like anchor shaped scars on my breasts and around the nipples and you know it's the same it's the same body but it's the one that's got my cesarean scar on it and my appendix removal scar and all of those bits are part of my story and part of this body 
Um, and it, yeah, it's not kind of perfect and shiny. It's a real body, and you know, there's a little shelf of 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 uh, baby fat hanging. <laughs> I'm like, I just had a baby. It's like, well, it was six years ago, but you know. <laughs> but it's just a real body, and it feels but real good to be in yeah. circle and going. Yeah, here it is, you know, yeah. and you know, this again the story around it being my torso. At first I was like, no, 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 put a put a really perfect torso on there, one that's not mine. And now I was like, no, this this book is about me and my yeah. stories and my book. It's gonna be my it's gonna be mine that's on there. Um and it feels that feels really special. It feels really special. Mm. And a bit embarrassing when, you know, like the mother in law looks, it's like, oh <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that's me. <laughs> Oh, that's a bit different. <laughs> oh, that's different. Are those your nipples? That's right, they are. <laughs> oh, I love that thing of coming full circle, but like, but it's real and really beautiful in a sort of whole way. Like, it's like wholly you with, you know, in your fullest, truest sort of self. It's as though you've really become fully who you are through this process mm. of growth and assimilating all of yourselves and then deeply accepting those selves. I think yeah. that's, that's really the part of it is that, that thing of acceptance. And then like you were saying through the poems, actually bringing all of those parts of you into the work and saying, yes, you, you know, you, I'm bringing you into the light. You're, I want you to be here because you're part of me, you know, that full, yeah. true, real part of who you really are. So yeah, that... yeah, yeah. Just just wanting all of those parts to be acknowledged and you know seen and heard, even if only by me. Even if nobody ever read the book, you no. Know, um, just to say, I acknowledge your existence and I accept you and mm. I love you and I'm here. And I hear you. Mm. You know, I, I hear that you feel shame sometimes. I hear that you're frightened sometimes, and you know, just to you know in, in therapy there's so much talk about reclaiming your inner child and going back to get them and it's yeah. that's been so important for me but also so has going to get the other selves as well the teenage yeah. self and the young adult self and the you know all of those parts the little kid and the baby and it's like you know they've they've all been we they we have all been through our own versions of events and it's like you know but we're, we're all living in this in this same body in this in this same skin and the body carries our experiences you know and if we my experiences if we don't deal with those experiences they really manifest into physical illness and mental illness yes absolutely they do and you mentioned um also previously about some of the diagnosis that you've had as yourself as an adult um the adhd and i was interested in whether you think that some of the addiction and the addictive behavior was a kind of a, an attempt to almost block out those really overwhelming feelings. So you've mentioned about things like clothing, finding certain types of clothing uncomfortable now. And I wondered if yeah. before, like if obviously that's always been you, but maybe before you were, you were sort of numbing those difficult feelings through using alcohol and drugs. Totally. And, and, you know, I think it's for so many years, you know, I've tried to think, you know, what, why did I need to, or why do I still need to actually, you know, numb feelings with whatever Instagram or 
cookies or you know whatever it is it doesn't have to be drinking drugs but um and I think it's such a combination of you know genetics you know it seems to run in my family and, and certain sides of the family um it's also a huge combination of trauma and my response to that and also having mild autism and ADHD you know being a highly sensitive person yeah and finding life difficult and overwhelming you know there's yeah. one of the poems in the skin I'm in is about um you know like the, the feeling like the the light and sound just assaults me sometimes I feel yeah. like oh, I hope in this world I just need to be in a dark quiet room because it all feels far too much and mm-hmm. you know being able to feel things on me on my skin like um needing to be in this perfect bubble of comfort because everything feels too much um and yeah it's it uh, like I say over the years I've just I've wanted to go oh that's the reason why oh yeah. that's why I'm like it uh, you know when I got the ADHD diagnosis I was like, oh that's why I am that way and it's like yeah. well actually no all these different strands yeah and they're all together to create a unique person who you know whose first option will always be to get away from discomfort mm. always but actually it's when we lean into that discomfort yes. and be with huge feelings that actually you know we realize that we can survive them and that we uh, that it makes us more whole and I, I would say happier you know that's a bit of a the word happy is like you know I don't mean happy all the time like la 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 every day sunny but but just generally being being okay you know that acceptance that yeah. acceptance of the acceptance is- yeah it's huge isn't it I think it's really interesting with with those kind of diagnoses because I've heard people say, you know, they were wondering about seeking a diagnosis and then as an adult and then felt a bit reticent because they wondered if maybe, you know, what is that going to bring at this stage in my life? How would it help me to know, you know, that I, as a woman, have ADHD? But I think you've put it so well. It's that thing of understanding why certain things do feel very difficult for you and I always like to sort of describe it as it's almost like a volume uh, dial and I I just really believe that we're all set at slightly different points on that volume dial and some people you know for them life is just turned up it's really turned up to the max and everything is felt so keenly and so intensely and for other people they're just their set point is much lower so they just their tolerance it's different and I think that's a helpful way of of understanding people and just the differences between us all and that we don't all respond to things in the same way we won't all you know be able to experience or or want to do things in the same way but that's okay like we're not the same yeah and you know just just little things like I remember being, you know, when I was young, I remember we went to uh, like a holiday park and we were supposed to do this like canoeing type thing. And we had to put these wetsuits on, which were still a bit wet and had sand in them. And like that for me is the worst. I mean, it's like a nightmare. I just, and I remember screaming. I was like, ah, I can't put it And they were, yeah. my whole family, you know, because they didn't understand. They were like, yeah. what's wrong with her? She's so dramatic. Like yeah. she's so sensitive. What's wrong with her? And I was, uh, you know, and kind of not in a mean way, but kind of, you know, making fun of it, really. And it, and I'd always felt, oh, I'm too much. I'm too much. You know, there's something yeah. wrong with me. And it's like, no, there isn't actually, you know, and I can understand when 
say if I'm going to sit my son, you know, George is also autistic, um, but, you know, he's, his autism is not high functioning. And when I, so when I took him to his new school and they went to put one of these plastic, um, what do you call them, overalls on um, to play with the water, right? And I remember thinking, oh, like, oh my God, that, can't, that couldn't go near me. And as soon as they tried to put his arm in, he went, ah, and took his arm. And I thought, I totally get it, man. I totally I get, get you. Yeah. Other people, it's just yeah. an overall. I'm like, no, but it's not to him and yeah. it's not to me. I can understand how he feels about a lot of his kind of sensory issues and tactile defensiveness. I'm like, yeah, I get it. It's great that you we're, can have that empathy. <laughs> yeah, that you really understand and feel what it must feel like for him and why he must find things like that so difficult. Yeah, that's really helpful. <laughs> But the really exactly. amazing thing about you, Ebony, is that you you investigate your experiences creatively in your poetry. And mm. that requires an enormous degree of being able to be objective, being able to step back and really see your experiences. Because I think, especially when there's trauma, we're so enmeshed in those experiences that we can't actually look at them and allow ourselves to to feel them or to describe them or to really observe them and I'd love to know how you started writing because you've just really blown up on Instagram your writing is amazing and you have achieved so much success with it um, I, I really believe because you're so honest and open in, in what you say, it, it's really, really beautiful writing. Um, but I'd love to know, how did you, how did you get there? How did you get to that point where you could see things with that, that lens and then actually mm. put it into writing? So, so I've, all my life, I've, I've kind of written bits and bobs on and off. And I've always loved writing, but I never really, really made time for it. Um, and was always, you know, in inverted commas, too busy with work. And, you know, and, and I, the thought of sharing my writing, I, you know, I only started really writing. I, again, I've written poems over the years. I'd written the odd poem here and there and put it in a folder and kind of put it away. I'd certainly never showed them to anyone or read them aloud to anyone. Um, and it was actually during lockdown. Um, so March last year, when everything first started, I started writing poetry. And the first poem that I wrote was... I spent a really long time on it and it came quite from my head rather than from my stream of consciousness. And I kept thinking, oh, it's taking me ages to write this. And, and I wrote about not my own experience, but I wrote about what was happening to the world as, a, a, you know, as an experience and realising that actually it was totally mirroring the way that I felt about myself. But it, at that point, I wasn't able to write in the first person, you know, it was, it was too much. It was too vulnerable. So I, I wrote about this, you know, that what was happening to the world with the pandemic and didn't show it to anyone, you know, just kind of carried on. And so it was only, I think, so my experience is that, that during that lockdown, there, there was nowhere to go in terms of 
getting away from myself. Uh, I, I speak for myself. I was about to say for us getting away from ourselves. But for me, it was like all the things that I do to kind of keep myself, you know, not feeling uh, as much as possible. You know, whether that's my thing is like, make sure I go to Starbucks and I have a cigarette and I do this and I do this and then I complete my to-do list and I do that, you know, and, and all of a sudden it was like, there is nothing, there is fucking nothing and nowhere to go to get away from this. And the natural thing for me was to start writing. Um, I was in a lot of, I felt in quite a lot of pain. You know, there was a lot of, um, a lot of denial being shattered by this having to be present uh, mm. And it, it felt quite cruel, actually. And it really, the, the poetry started as a way to try and deal with that pain because mm. I needed a new way of dealing with it. You know, prior to that, you know, I, for as long as I can remember, 50, 14, 15 years, I had been to therapy every week. You know, I've been to my AA meetings. I've been to CODA meetings. You know, I've had a, a rigid support system in place as well as, you know, all the other things that we do to keep ourselves afloat and that was just all gone it felt like you know there is nothing mm. and so the the writing came and it started and then it, it got bolder and it got braver the more I wrote and I still at this point the thought of showing my poems to one person but this sounds like really dramatic but felt like I might die from being seen yeah. for who I really am and it, it felt terrifying. Uh, and I really challenged myself. And I remember sitting on a park bench with my closest friend in the world, Jordana. And I said, I'm going to try and read a poem to you that I've written. And she was like, great. And I was like, oh, and I just kept looking away. And I said, turn around me. Turn around. I, can't do it. I can't do it. Ah! And I was really thankful that I had my, my COVID mask on. Because oh. I thought, this makes it a little bit easier so I thought if I could just put some sunglasses <laughs> and a hat <laughs> and then maybe change, use one of those voice changing things, then maybe I can read it. That, that, this, this was a year ago, you know, this was how difficult it was. Mm. And over the last year, you know, the poetry has just, it's gone from, you know, sharing one poem online and then, it, yeah, like you said, it's suddenly I've been really, really lucky that lots of people have been interested in it and mm. wanted to read it and shared it. And and it's suddenly become my my the most important thing in my life other than my my people. You know, it's become it's become something that heals me, something that helps me and something that helps me to step out into the world and be brave and show who I am inside. Because, you know, for so many years, this kind of trying to keep this mask of perfection and like, oh, you know, and don't let anyone see who you really are because then, you know, because the shame that will, you know, if they, if they see who you actually are and what you actually think, they will definitely hate you and abandon you and reject you, you know? And mm. so, so yeah, so the, the poetry, I, I started writing a lot about my, you know, experiences as being a survivor. Um, and I started writing poetry about motherhood and, my son and my experience with him and I haven't shared too much of that but what I have shared mainly is these ideas of um, living in a body that is dissociated and that has gone through a lot of trauma and you know a lot of addiction and a lot of difficult I was about to say negative experiences but I just call them difficult experiences now because it, it, much as cliche as it sounds 
I don't think I would change anything that's happened to me um, mm. because it literally, you know, I, I am who I am mm. because of those things. And mm. it does sound cliched, sorry, it really does. But, but yeah, you know, it, and for me, sometimes I'd look back at poems I'd written and think, who wrote that? Like, you know, and often I'll be writing at one o'clock in the morning once George is asleep, he is not a sleeper. So <laughs> he's up till God midnight. And then I'm like... And then I'm just like, oh, and I think I should be going to sleep because I've got to get up in the morning. And I'm like, I just want to write this poem. And then the next day I'll be like, oh, I don't remember writing that. Who wrote that? And I'm like, mm. oh, right. This is mm. interesting. So this is this is how I feel when I'm in a stream of consciousness and mm. I'm just letting it pour, letting yeah. it pour. And that that is the thing that is healing all this trauma, you know. And mm. I read something, I read something not long ago about how when people write poetry uh they can literally see it on brain scans how it changes ptsd and you know i was diagnosed with ptsd years ago alongside all my other names that i've got depression anxiety ptsd ocd you know like every letter under the sun and you know and i can feel the biggest shift in the last year in myself since i started writing poetry Gosh. That was a really long answer. Don't ask me anything, Yvonne, because I'll just be here all day. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, we it's need to brilliant. go now. We've been here for four days. <laughs> but everything you're saying is is just so, so interesting. And you have so many rich, difficult, very difficult um, and traumatic experiences. But you have so much to draw on. It's really fascinating to hear what you're saying. So keep keep going <laughs> <laughs> thank you so so you have achieved success incredibly now in your poetry that you're going to have a collection published the skin i'm yeah. in <laughs> and um by blood moon poetry press and you have one particular poem that you wanted to read for us which you feel really ties in with the moment of tenderness so I'd love for you to read that for us now yeah I, I haven't read this aloud before and because I'm quite disorganized and have ADHD I haven't practiced it either so let's see how it comes out um so It'll this be poem fun. is is definitely is about the moment of tenderness and about the you know the letting go of shame as a whole and it's called uncuffed and one day, as the snow fell soundlessly, a white space became to replace my centre, pregnant with disgrace for the longest gestation, the birthplace of untruths, seeded in my youth. As I plucked the self-fired arrow of blame from my tender heart and emptied out the shame into a litter bin, gave her a new name, wiped my tears with kitchen roll, rough on flimsy skin, thickening and walked out of the shade, uncuffed, cheeks touched with pale sunlight, scuffed trainers cast aside, the swallow gliding in quiet celebration, who saw me serve time for this imagined crime, and wondering how and why I ever could have thought me unbeautiful. Oh, so beautiful, thank you. I love the last line as well. And I feel that's so moving and something that all of us struggle to realise about ourselves, this sense of how could I have ever thought 
that I was to blame? How could I have ever thought that I, mm. that I, how could I have never seen myself for who I really am? But yeah, yeah, it's the hardest thing. And it's so, so easy for me to see it in other people. You know, I can, you know, particularly in my work as a, as a birth doula, I've heard hundreds of birth stories and I've heard hundreds of mothers say, if I hadn't have done that, this wouldn't happen. And, you know, I'm not talking things on the, on the same scale, you know, I haven't supported anyone who's been through similar to, to what I have, but, you know, it's so easy for me to go, of course that wasn't your fault. Mm-hmm. Of course mm-hmm. it wasn't, mm-hmm. you know, and to, to encourage people to be kind to themselves mm-hmm. and forgive themselves and mm-hmm. to, mm-hmm. you know, but when, when it came to me, it was like, no, and, and it's all shame. It's just mm, it's mm. a big pile of shit, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's really interesting. I, I completed a, um, a course in mindful self-compassion um, who was, it was created by Kristin Neff and she's really fascinating. Mm. Um, yeah, so I, I did her course in self-compassion and it was a live online training. So there were about 13 of us all around the world and we'd all come together live each week And it was really fascinating to experience how difficult everybody found it to offer kindness and tenderness to themselves. And it was a really shared common experience of I would in a heartbeat, I would tell my best friend, you know, don't don't blame yourself for that. You Mm. have done this. You've done that. Everyone was doing it. Everyone could do it so easily. But to do it to themselves, it was it was a struggle and really really fascinating to kind of observe that and witness why why that is and why we all feel that way um I wanted now to just talk a bit about some of these experiences that you've had your your son George who I know you describe as the love of your life is six now and um his birth was obviously very very traumatic um I wonder if you could describe something of that experience for us um, and start with the pregnancy and how how mm. that was um so I had always always wanted to have a baby and <clears throat> I was really ready uh, and excited and unfortunately had a very difficult pregnancy um so I think mainly as a result of stopping smoking and coming off my antidepressants all at once Uh, and at that point I had done a lot of therapy but I hadn't worked through my trauma you know to the degree that I have done now Uh, so there were all of these feelings that had been you know quite suppressed for a long time suddenly came flooding in along with the hormones along with the fear of the change and my body changing and all the other stuff that that brings up and so I had really severe depression during my pregnancy um I also had severe sickness and nausea which for me just you know lasted Mm. the whole the whole way through um uh the good news is that the day after I had him it completely vanished uh you know there was there was the the trauma of the birth to deal with but that you know in terms of tough again I I did you know the hormones settled down I started taking my medication and you know um I'd start smoking again <laughs> not that I'm advising that as a, a good health measure but it was for me um and yeah and and 
so uh, I don't, I don't think it's often in... sorry to interrupt I don't think it's often mm. talked about how difficult pregnancy can be and how it can trigger things emotionally but physically I mean I think there is this kind of rosy picture of pregnancy that's you know that's very much you know you can see it everywhere on Instagram and and it it can be a really challenging experience I actually wrote a piece on on antenatal um depression oh, um, did you? For a magazine yeah and I the some of the women I spoke to you know it was I think it's just really important to talk about it because I think one of the hardest things and this is going back to the shame and and it's that thing of why why what's wrong with me that I'm feeling like this so there's Mm. there's the feeling that's difficult but then there's the double you know the pain that you layer on top of that which is well what's wrong with me for feeling like this and I think it's really important to normalize that it can be extremely difficult being pregnant, the hormones that it releases in the body and yeah. things that, that it, it can trigger. Yeah. 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 It was not what I was expecting at all. I just, you know, I, I, I remember weeing on the stick and thinking, Oh my God, I'm pregnant. This is amazing. <laughs> and I was fine for a fine for about maybe two weeks. And then it just suddenly all went very, very, very downhill. Um, you know and so yeah. what sort of things what sort of things w- was going were going on with you you had physical you had the sickness you had the I had the sickness and the depression and severe dissociation um and really yeah lots of suicidal thoughts and feeling like I couldn't exist I just couldn't be here I didn't want to die but I didn't want to be here at all mm-hmm. um and did I just you, didn't know you, how I could get through. Yeah. Oh, gosh, I must have been so, so difficult. And did you manage to to get help through that? <laughs> Not really is the answer. I I remember driving to um, a walk a walk in medical centre when I was about eleven weeks, and I had I had like I said I'd come off my antidepressants that I'd been on for a long time, just cold turkey, and you know stopped smoking went along here and I I I went there because I was very concerned that you know I, I didn't know what would happen because I was in such a terrible state yeah and I said I I need medication and I need it now yeah um and this doctor said well you you can't take that when you're pregnant and I said you know you don't you, you don't understand you're not hearing what I'm saying you don't understand I cannot do this like I cannot you know I can't continue the pregnancy or I can't I can't continue to live unless mm. you help me. Mm. Um, and they didn't. And I went home and I found my old packet of uh, amitriptyline and I started taking that again. I then got my doctor on board, you know, got an appointment, got that sorted out. And mm. it, it helped a little bit. Mm. It helped a little bit, um, mm. but not hugely. I, I, you know, again, I tried to find some groups and some support you know for antenatal depression but it was just so not talked about and I mm. the one group I did find I was I felt so ill and so sick and I paid for a taxi to take me all the way there it was miles away and I got there and it was all people who had postnatal depression and no one who was pregnant and I just oh. felt so alone I just oh. thought this is not you know yeah so um it was a pretty awful experience but um 
definitely a lot I I think I got something wonderful out of it in the end yeah and I think a lot more needs to be done around antenatal depression definitely um and then the birth so there's the you know the the kind of excitement of it and the the relief that that you've had the baby and that you're feeling more like yourself but what what happened um during the birth to 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 cause the problems that that have happened with George so it's really difficult to pinpoint exactly when and how the brain damage occurred okay um but what happened was I was 33 weeks pregnant and and my waters went um and I also had group B strep uh and you know had I have been 37 weeks plus uh you know that that wouldn't have been such a you know a, a, a cause for concern but what happened was I had gone along to the hospital and what I know now is that the protocol should have been that I was um not not I won't use the word allowed because that's never the right term but the protocol should have been that the waters shouldn't have been gone for any longer than 16 hours given right. that I had group B strep and given that I the baby would have been preterm um but that wasn't picked up and so I was sent home so um I was told that I would be induced in a week because when I was 34 weeks to give right. the baby more time to grow and so had been at this point 63 hours with the waters gone um and then went went in to be I actually went in to talk about my birth preferences and uh while I was there at the end of the meeting I just said oh can you listen into the baby before I go and she said yeah that's fine so she got someone to listen in and I could see her face kind of drop um and said we need to get the consultant and um it was very suddenly we need to do an emergency cesarean you know the baby's heart rate is baby's heart rate which we know now baby's heart rate was pathological um but the the other issue was that there wasn't a theater available and so I was left for quite a long time um in this state and uh so up until very very recently we had assumed that that's when the brain damage occurred but we got some scans um, and some more information recently that would suggest that actually the, the brain damage was not caused by him being left in there for that time and wasn't caused by the infection. So this is all really new information to me and I'm still processing right. it myself. But what we do know is that he had a major stroke sometime around the time of the birth. It could have been just before, it could have been just after, it could have been during, right. but that it freakishly wasn't caused by that that chain of events which right. we always thought it was but it wasn't okay. apparently um and so he was born you know not breathing and had like I said had his heart rate had been low for a very long time um was taken straight to intensive care so I didn't see him um I didn't see him for about nine hours actually after he was born and then I just saw him through the incubator for a few minutes and then was very off my head on you know pethidine and opioids so it's it's, I'm kind of laughing about it when I'm like oh it just makes me really sad Uh, you know I've got I've got a picture of me with my hands going through the little portholes in the incubator and kind of 
touching him for the first time but I can't I can't really remember it yeah. and so yeah, yeah it feels yeah. sad but um so yeah he was in intensive care for um in intensive care for about a week and then we were in in total for about three weeks so I was uh left on the postnatal ward which was really shit because I was didn't have my baby with me and mm. was with four other women with their babies um who were crying all night so that was Aww. 17 days yeah. of you know it was really difficult and yeah so like I say we 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 now not, are not sure when it happened or exactly how it happened but I suppose the most important thing for me was is now is to know that there's nothing that I could have done there's nothing that I could have done to change it. There's nothing that I did wrong. Yeah. You know, it, it was always, should I have gone in sooner? What if I had have done this? What if I had been a medical doctor and, and knew about group B strep levels? What if this? And actually, it turns out it was just one of these things that just happened. You know, it just mm-hmm. happened. And while the birth was traumatic and the care wasn't good, it seems now that it, it that wasn't actually the 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 cause of it. So yeah just trying to yeah kind of process that and it's such new information for us that you know what we thought it was is now suddenly not what we thought it was and yeah so so the whole experience was oh I mean hugely you know traumatic um and completely out of your control but yeah having a baby always is um it's like one of those big things in life it teaches us it's like the ultimate lesson in you are not in control of life. Mm. Um, but for you, that was completely magnified and intensified. Um, and those weeks and months and years after, you must have just been trying to process everything and, and trying to understand it all and then get used to, you know, the, the new this new life um, that you had. How, how did that impact in your relationship with your partner Steve um I, I you know when I when I look back over the last six years it, it, it I look back on how Steve and I have coped with so much pride I'm so so proud of us as a couple mm. for coming through what we've come through um and particularly because you know there were there were so George had that's my son George had um multiple diagnoses and they were very spread out so you know when he was born we didn't know that he'd suffered any brain damage you know we didn't know that he was blind which you know we later found out was a genetic um issue um and so you know we had this little lovely baby you know we were trying to get over the trauma of the birth and then you know, about four or five months in, I thought, you know, this little prem baby, I'm thinking he's still not making any eye contact. He's not kind of tracking what, you mm. know, what's going on. And, mm. and I'd taken him twice to the doctor and said, I'm not sure there's something right with his eyesight. There's something wrong. I'm not sure. And they said, no, he's fine. So you just and knew you had that knowing, didn't you, as a mother? You knew. Yeah. You know, and, and I didn't have any experience of prem babies and I kept thinking oh maybe it's just because mm. he was born early you know and mm. he's catching up but I, I knew something was right and I didn't want to know I didn't want to know mm. I really didn't yeah. um but what happened was eventually we took him to a private pediatrician and he 
looked at him and he said, I'm so sorry you've had to pay to come and see me because, you know, he's blind. He's, it looks like to me like he's totally blind. And uh, so, you know, he was, he was amazing. He, he said, come to Moorfields tomorrow and we will fast track you come to A&E and I'll fast track you into the system because this should have been picked up earlier uh, yeah. um so from there you know we got the news that he was blind um and uh you know I, well I can't even I'd be here all day if I went into each each diagnosis and how we processed it but as we were in complete grief and trauma around that and trying to come to terms with it the hospital has said we are going to arrange a brain scan to look at the cause of the blindness, you know, whether it's genetic or whether it's the, the nerves, the um, optic nerves. So they arranged this brain scan. He had the general anesthetic and MRI. Uh, and then another month later, they called us in and said, we've got some news for you. Uh, he's not only blind, he's blind. Turns out he's blind from a, a genetic disorder but he's also suffered brain damage and that's a separate thing. So, right. so we then had the blindness diagnosis, the brain damage diagnosis, which we just couldn't handle at that point. It was too much. It was like, we were still trying to, you know, uh, process the blindness. So I kind of parked the stroke for a long time. I was just like, that doesn't exist. I'll just deal with the blindness, you know? <laughs> um, uh, we then another four months later got uh, another part of the picture was that, the type of genetic disorder he has is quite a rare version of it, um, which means that they said that he has a very high chance of having complete kidney failure as well. Um, mm -hmm. So that was the next bit. Um, and then a year later, we were told he was autistic and intellectually disabled. And, you know, so it was just like when I look back at how me and Steve have coped, you know, I heard a statistic once and I can't remember the numbers, but it was. It was the outcome of people, uh, addict, clean and sober addicts meeting in recovery and the chances of their relationship surviving is next to none. So we've, we'd always said, oh, we're, you know, we're the exception. You know, we're both clean and sober. We met in recovery. Uh, we've been together 15, yeah, 15 years now. Um, and then there were also a set of statistics about special needs parents and how many survive, you know, going through the, the the trauma of it, the grieving process and the day-to-day -day managing of it. And uh, again, was really, really low numbers. And Steve was like, well, you know, we're, we're one in a million, we're still together. And it's been hard. You know, we both do our separate recovery. We both do weekly therapy and we support each other. But it, it, was, it was really difficult. You know, it, it, yeah. it put a lot of pressure on us. Um, and particularly, I think, for Steve, seeing me go through all that yeah. kind of self-hatred and mm. because Blame. of my previous experiences, mm. you know, blaming myself. Mm. He said it was really painful to watch you in such a painful place for yeah. so long. And yeah. to, to, you know, and I had quite a lot of bitterness and I'm generally a very, very big hearted, open hearted person. But I mm. felt very angry and very bitter if I wasn't blaming myself, I was blaming the hospital. I was blaming, I was like, who the fuck is responsible for yeah. this? You know, like who has done this to our yeah. child? Who's done this to us? Yeah. Oh, wow. It's, I mean, it sounds like you and Steve literally are one in a million. <laughs> and obviously you are very deeply connected to each other. And you've, you're also very aware of yourselves and, and how, you know, 
events are impacting on you and then I think it, it always starts with awareness so it sounds like you both mm. have a really good sense of that you did go through therapy didn't you t- together did you go through therapy together around the the to deal with the birth or what was it separately it was separately actually. yeah yeah so yeah. we were already both doing therapy before he was born but yeah. we obviously then spent probably a good three years of weekly therapy talking about George and you know and still still now you know I I still talk a lot about the my original trauma and and all that stuff but I you know regularly I'm going there with my feelings around George and my feelings around who he is and who he isn't you know who I thought he might be uh, you know there's there's that day the day-to-day beauty and pain of having a child with special needs and you know the the processes of it's you know it's it's like when you look at the grieving process you know there is there's there's anger there's denial there's mm. grief there mm. is loss there is acceptance there is mm. and then and then you get new waves of it as new yeah. milestones come along or don't come along you yeah. know he's just he's just recently started at a special needs school so that's yeah. another big process for us to get our heads around mm. and mm. yeah but uh steve is is one in a million you know he's a yeah he's great and and to think that when i first saw him i just thought oh yeah he's my type he's good looking <laughs> i like him <laughs> and i little did i know that he's just a fucking amazing person <laughs> i just thought oh i fancy him you know i was only 20 what was i 24 when i met him something Aww. like that wow yeah well, you are very, very lucky. You obviously where you right where you are meant to be in that moment. So. Yeah. Um. So the process of of therapy, there, you know, lots of people go through trauma, and not everybody does seek therapy or or manage to go through therapy for for various reasons. But can you just describe how it's helped you? What what has therapy mm-hmm. done to help? you with with the process of acceptance and presence I think I think first of all having a person who is there every week in the same room at the same time regardless and who is emotionally unattached to the situation it's like this space is just for me you know like I don't have to really think about your feelings and I don't have to think about you know giving you space to speak or you know your side of it that that's really fundamental um we've also we, we've done quite a lot of body work as well so you know we'll do things like um holding parts of the body and mm. massage while we're kind of talking through things that's mm. been really helpful um but I think more than anything it's it's uncovered all these thousands and thousands of layers that I didn't know how to take off myself and that had built up over the years, you know, so many, so many layers have built up over the years. And, you know, there's something that people say in recovery about, you know, another layer of the onion, like how many more fucking layers are there of this? (laughs) It's a never ending onion, (laughs) you know, and, and, but, but really, you know, just being able to, find out who I am and Mm. get to know myself and what works for me and you know how Mm. I think and how I feel and how I deal with things Mm. um has just enabled it all to kind of come together and also 
showing up there every week for myself and paying mm. that money that sometimes is difficult to afford you know yeah. when there's me and Steve both doing it on a weekly basis it's not you know and it's not something that everyone can afford and sometimes it's a real stretch for us yeah but actually the worth that comes for me from going okay I'm gonna do that rather than buy myself a pair of shoes yeah um, which I will never wear because <laughs> I hate wearing heels <laughs> but I like to buy heels like you know them, but yeah not, yeah and I had to look at them, but I can't walk in them. Um, but yeah, and 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 also just finding finding the right therapist. You know, he yeah. has been he has just been so kind and compassionate and wonderful, but also has pushed me sometimes and yeah. said, you know, and I've said, well, I can't do this, and he said, I think you can actually. Yeah. I think yeah. you can. And yeah. why don't you read that poem to me aloud? And I'm like, no, oh, I'd rather die. <laughs> now he's like, oh, so you're having a poetry book published I thought you were never gonna never gonna show your poem Mr. anyone I'm like yeah I am (laughs) so he's he's showing you your progress he's kind of he's holding up a mirror all the time to it and and showing you how how amazingly you're doing and yeah I mean it's incredible what you've just said there so it's that space it's it's kind of creating that space that sacred space that you don't fear from you know you show up there every week and then you also are becoming aware of all these stories that you've taken on you know you've just taken on story after story about you and what this thing that happened what that means about you and and then it's it's actually holding up those stories to the light and seeing them for what they are not as truth but just as a belief and then uncovering them and I suppose just you know gently gradually shedding them so that's really I, I really like what you said about uncovering and shedding and mm. you know the, the the title of the book that's coming out next week it's so it's called this skin I'm in and it took me a long time to come up with the title I was like what is it what is it it's about the body it's about the layers of the body you know and I remember having a conversation with someone and I said oh you know and it's just so hard like the skin I'm in you know like being in this this body and the skin is the thing that contains all the stories, you know. Yeah. And so the poems in the book, you know, the way that I've kind of summarised it is, you know, it's holding up a microphone to each organ and each bone and each bit of tissue that wants to tell its story and go, well, I felt like this when, yeah. you know, when the trauma happened. And and actually my heart felt like this and my, my liver experienced this and my bones felt shocked to shit. Oh. You know, it, 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 wow. it's kind of, and then it's all, so it's like, like I've kind of taken the skin off, you know, got each organ out in yeah. therapy and gone, okay, yeah. what did this one feel like? Yeah. What did this one? And then kind of put them all back together yeah. again and mm. saying, I'm going to mend you. I am mm. going to stitch you back together, put your skin back on and mend you and you'll be whole. And that's really what the whole book is about. That is so clever. And so it's very, very visual. And I think it's bringing awareness to what we were talking about earlier, this, this sense of you hold body, you hold trauma in your body in all the different parts of your body Mm. and you can bring awareness to that which is exactly what you're doing through through these writings and I, I I also think you know just for our listeners to be aware of that very fact it's an actual it's a real thing it's it's what happens when you 
even when you are triggered into a, a very momentary state of fight or flight, that stays in your body unless you are able to release it. And when that, those states are really, you know, taking over your life as they have done with you, it, it's, it's, there's a lot, there's a lot of it in there to, to, yeah. to weigh you down. So it, and it, it's in there, isn't it? In your bones, in your, in your joints, yes. in, in your muscles, in your tissue. Um, and so incredible and so beautiful that through your writing, you're like, you're like kind of zooming in on all these different parts of you mm. where these traumas have, have lodged themselves. And then you're kind of interrogating it and investigating it yeah. and describing it. And it, it's, a, it's a painful, but beautiful yeah. process. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I can't even tell you how different I feel in mm. terms of, you know, I felt like I would never forgive so many things in my life or mm. that I could never forgive myself or the person that had done it. Or, and, and actually I can't say that every day is like rosy and joyful because life is just not like that. But what I can say is that I feel quite at peace with most of the things that have happened. I feel like, you know, like it's all okay. And yes, I still struggle with difficult feelings around those things, but it feels like they've been processed as much as they possibly can be at this point. And there mm. will be more processing to do because it yeah. never ends. But I feel that, you know, all the things that were keeping me stuck in addiction and were keeping me in really negative patterns of thinking and behavior and feeling and, you know, the, all the difficulty that I was in and the, 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 the extreme pain that I was in has changed. It mm. has changed. And that's what I wanted the message of the book to be is to people who are going through difficulties, whether it's grief, whether it's trauma, whether you're a survivor of abuse, whatever you're going through, that there is healing. Healing is possible. Healing um, is possible. Even on the, yeah, yeah even yeah. on the very, very, very darkest days where it feels like you don't want to be alive anymore and you can't do it and nobody understands. It's like, you know, the, the, the moon is always out there. It's always out there. And you can sometimes, sometimes it is about holding on until you can get there. And other times it's kind of clawing your way there and going, oh, I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to give up. And, and, and also the biggest part for me is just not doing it alone, not doing it alone. You know, I write my poems alone, but I have to force myself to call people and engage with people and yeah. tell them how I'm feeling. Yeah. And, and yeah. Yeah. Connect, yeah. just connect. Co you know, to connect. connect. Yes. It amazing how challenging that can be. I, I know I feel the same. I, I live away from my family and friends and actually interestingly, when I'm feeling at my worst is when I find it hardest to connect. And um, it's such a kind of, paradox always mm. to me like why why I feel that way but I think it, it yeah. can also be a common experience um mm. but what what you're talking about which I think is is so so interesting and so helpful is that it's 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 a type of acceptance and I think when we talk about acceptance it can be hard for people to hear because especially when there's been severe trauma I think there's this always this tendency to say well, no, I, I don't accept it. I didn't want this thing to happen. So if I could undo it, I would. So why would I accept it? But I think it's, mm. that's kind of missing the point. I think the acceptance is 
first of of the fact that in life there will always be painful things that will happen to you always in everyone's life it's unavoidable and then when something difficult does happen it's it's accepting that you're finding it difficult it's accepting that it's painful it's accepting that it's having this difficult impact on you and your life and and then you go from there and that's exactly what you're talking about it's exactly what you've done and i think it 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 will be so inspiring for so many people who've who've struggled and who are struggling with difficult experiences in their life to hear the journey that you are on and the journey that you've you've gone through um we have just had the most amazing mind blowing <laughs> conversation um i feel we need to sort of think about coming to an end now much as um yeah. there's still so many things i'd like to to talk about with you but i also think that we've we've gone in some really interesting directions um and i wanted to finish with a question that i always ask my guests which is about the tenderness revolution and the idea behind it are as in the tenderness revolution which is this quality of tenderness that we have for ourselves and others is the three c's and they enable us to fully see i think the truth about the way things are and the three c's are courage curiosity and compassion and i wanted to ask you ebony if you had to choose one of these qualities uh one that you feel means the most to you in your life what would you choose out of curiosity courage and compassion and why i was listening to your podcast last week in the car um and i heard you ask this question and i thought oh what would my answer be and I, I straight away went courage absolutely courage it would be my answer um the reason for that is that so courage is something that i value greatly in myself uh, and in others and I think you know curiosity and compassion are endlessly important um, but in order for me to get to compassion for myself in particular I need to have courage I need to have a fuckload of courage because it doesn't come naturally um, you know in order for me to share a poem and talk to you today and you know, without going, ah, I can't do it, takes a hell of a lot of courage. But every time we do those things that scare us, we become a little bit more of who we really are. You know, we, we've, 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 despite our fear, we've had the courage and we've done that thing anyway. And we just become a bit more like, yeah, I can, I can do those things. Yeah. And, and I did do that and I was okay. And then the next time, maybe it's not quite so difficult and we don't need to muster up so much courage, but, you know, it, it's the courage to do those things that don't feel like huge things. Uh, I'm going to give you a really random example. I wanted to have a fringe and I'd never had a fringe before. And I thought, well, I can't, I can't carry off a fringe. I'm not cool. You know, I'm not a person who has a fringe. And I, you know, I don't know why I'm talking about this, Yvonne. Stop me now. Um, do it. I thought, fuck it, I'm going to have a fringe cut. So I had it cut and I was like, I thought, people are going to be like, who does she think she is? And it sounds like the tiniest, stupidest thing because it's such a surfacey outside thing. But it just made me think, 
I can do whatever I want to do. Yeah. I can I can be a poet. I thought, I'll be a poet. Who do you think you are writing yeah. a poetry book? And I'm like, I can have a fringe and write a poetry book if I want to. I can be whoever I want to yeah. be. I can do whatever I want to do. Yeah. I've just got to kind of pray for that courage and feel that fear and just go for it anyway. And also when I am feeling that fear, hold someone's hand through it, you know, ring my best friend, ring my sponsor, ring yeah. my partner or my mum and just say, I'm feeling really, really scared. Yeah. And, you know, just not be alone in it. And mm. yeah, courage is everything for me. Gosh. Oh, that's, that's so brilliant. I love that. And you talking about courage, it, it makes me think about the way I envisage courage as part of this, this thing of tenderness. And it's, I think it's for me, it's that thing of, of, I think Glennon Doyle said, you know, we can do hard things. We can do like, hard things. Like, you know, it's like, it's, it's really, really fucking hard, but we can yeah. do hard things. And then the other part of it is that courage, it's not always what we think courage to be. It's not always that thing of pushing yourself. Sometimes the courage is actually to see yourself and to really to understand who you are and it's the courage to to go within and to to actually connect to who you are and then to to show that out into the world to put that true self out there into the world so you've you've literally that that's it Yvonne that I wish I'd said that <laughs> yeah the courage to see yourself I loved what you said to see yourself <laughs> yeah well, Ebony, thank you so much for your time. I feel like I've taken thank up you. too much of your time already. Um, no, I've, I've loved talking to you. I could talk to you all day. Um, it's been wonderful. You're, you're such a, the way that you speak and, you know, it, it makes me feel really comfortable and you're really kind. And I just think it's wonderful oh. what you're doing. Oh, so thank wonderful. you. Uh, I can't say, you know, how much I've enjoyed your openness. It's, it's quite rare to speak to someone who can really honestly look within and then speak from the heart. And you have done that so, so profoundly. So I really, 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 really appreciate that. So thank you again. Thank you. (laughs) Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Tenderness Revolution. I hope you come back for more because my aim with this podcast is to help us become more aware of these moments of kindness and compassion and how they shape our lives and enable us to feel more connected to the world around us. for listening to this episode of the tenderness revolution i hope you come back for more because my aim with this podcast is to help us become more aware of these moments of kindness and compassion and how they shape our lives and enable us to feel more connected to the world around us